Well, if you've got your Bibles this morning, we are going to Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5. Uh, we're actually finishing up the chapter today, and it's in close connection to the passage we looked at last, last week. I actually debated whether these two should be together or apart. I thought there was enough in the calling of Levi to spend one week on it. But it is important that we put these two passages of scriptures together. Last week, as we saw Jesus calling Levi, we saw how Levi responded by inviting all of his closest friends, many of them tax collectors, what the Pharisees quickly called sinners and tax collectors. He invited them over to his house for a dinner to introduce them to Jesus, who Levi had just left his tax booth to begin following. Levi wanted people to know more about Jesus, and so his way of doing so was throwing this feast, opening his home, this meal, inviting Jesus and Jesus' disciples, presumably, as well as his friends, to this same table. Now, as we saw last week, this caused a little bit of an objection from the Pharisees. We spent some time talking about the Pharisees' perspective on the situation, not only of this meal Jesus was sharing with tax collectors, but the broader challenges that the Jews were facing in the land of the time. The Pharisees were determined to find freedom from the rule of Rome. They were determined to receive again God's full blessing that the whole land that he had promised would be theirs. And they did that with a particular kind of expectation— The Pharisees believed that if they could purify their lives and their worship, if they could focus all of their energies on a full and complete obedience to the law, then it would all but guarantee the blessing of God and the fulfillment of all of God's promises for them, which they in particular saw as a Messiah that would come and drive out the Romans and restore that sovereign rule of God's people over God's land. Jesus, coming as a teacher in their eyes and calling one of his disciples, a tax collector, and then going so far as to enter the home of that tax collector and eat with other tax collectors, perhaps even Gentiles, seemed to the Pharisees like it was its own kind of collaboration with the enemy. If Jesus, who should be opposing all things Roman and purifying all of the land, would share a table and meals with those who work with Rome— then is Jesus himself not capitulating to the power of Rome? This was the Pharisee idea. And so they charged Jesus' disciples with this kind of act. How is it that your teacher eats with sinners and tax collectors? In their mind, Jesus risked all of the things that the Pharisees had dedicated their lives with so much religiosity to purifying and obeying. We saw last week that Jesus countered this charge with a simple idea. He had not come to call the righteous to repentance, but to call sinners to repentance. He had came to call, as we talked about last week, people to repentance. He was expecting people like Levi to change the way they were living, to follow him and live a different life. But Jesus' point was he had come not for those who were already righteous, but he had come for people like Levi who needed this message, this call to repent and to live differently. What we get today is the rest of that conversation. That's basically where we ended, Jesus' response to the objection of the Pharisees. But the conversation didn't stop there. The Pharisees responded to Jesus. They countered Jesus' argument with an argument of their own. And that's where we pick up in the story. The same scene, the tax collectors, Jesus, his disciples at this dinner, this feast that Levi has held in his home and opened The Pharisees, perhaps standing just outside, discussing what they're observing through the windows or doors with Jesus' disciples, and continuing that objection that they had. The same Pharisees, the same disciples, the same conversation we looked at last week, this dinner with tax collectors and sinners. 
If you've got your Bible, Luke chapter 5, I'll be reading beginning in verse 33 through the end of the chapter. Luke 5, verse 33. And they said to him, this is those Pharisees saying to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be, will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Matthew chapter 5. I mentioned it was important to keep in mind this conversation from last week, because really what we're seeing in this passage is the continuation of what is a debate, and a particular kind of debate, this debate amongst teachers, Jewish teachers, in the first century. Why I tried to reintroduce what we talked about last week is because it helps make sense of how this conversation continues in chapter 5. Jesus had said to them, remember, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we read that the Pharisees responded to this. Oh, you want to talk about repentance, they say to Jesus. Well, the disciples of John, that is John the Baptist, they fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But your disciples eat and drink. Now, remember this setting. Jesus and the disciples are sitting there reclined at the table with tax collectors. And remember in John's gospel how Jesus's ministry had begun at a wedding feast where he turned that water into wine. This seems to be a kind of pattern forming. If you think through the gospel stories, you can think of several times that Jesus gathers to eat with his disciples or is welcomed into homes where they celebrate in meals. The Pharisees look at Jesus and the way that he's acting in these places and what they charge him with, what they say to him in response to his line, I've come to call the sinners to repent, is they say, well, your ministry doesn't look like one of repentance. We know what repentance is supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like fasting and prayers. It looks like self-reproach and sackcloth and ashes. Do you remember the scene when we were preaching through Ezra and Nehemiah, where Ezra had come teaching them the law and had called them to repentance? There's the one scene where he literally makes them sit out in the courtyard as the cold rain is falling on them, and they're weeping and tearing their garments. This is the image the Pharisees have of what a ministry of repentance is supposed to look like. Jesus says, I've come to call sinners to repentance, and they say, oh, interesting, repentance, huh? As you eat and drink... Don't you know repentance is supposed to look like fasting and prayers, sackcloth and ashes? They specifically call out John the Baptist, which we've seen in the beginning of Luke's gospel. John, as you will remember, was a prophet out in the wilderness calling people to come and be baptized in repentance. And as they would say to him, what then, how then should we live? He charged them to go and live differently through this repentance that he was preaching. Well, the Pharisees point out that Jesus's ministry does not look like John the Baptist's ministry. Apparently, John's disciples took fasting and this kind of prayer of repentance very seriously. 
Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. Jesus isn't out alone in the wilderness like John the Baptist. He's at a party. Jesus isn't eating locusts and honey and wearing around coarse camel hair garments. He's eating and drinking with his disciples, going from town to town, entering homes, celebrating. Jesus is at dinner parties, while John the Baptist was out in the wilderness crying out repentance. And so it is the Pharisees object. Jesus speaks of repentance, and they answer him by saying, we know what repentance looks like, and you and your disciples sure don't look like the kind of repentance that we know. Then the Pharisees go on to point out their own fasting, you notice. They claim not only does John's disciples fast, but after all, Jesus, we know repentance because we Pharisees teach repentance and fasting. What they're trying to do is they're trying to tell Jesus, we have a better definition of repentance. We know based on the scriptures what repentance should look like. And your ministry does not fit what we understand repentance to be. Now, remember, Jesus tells us in the Gospels a lot about the way this repentance and fasting was carried out by the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisee who prayed with gratitude in the temple that he was not like this tax collector, this sinner, one of the things that he pointed out in his own prayer to God was that he fasted twice a week, this unique mark of distinction that he had, this regular fasting that as a Pharisee he lived by. Or Matthew recorded this of Jesus' words to his disciples, and when you fast, Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. He's specifically charging in this passage the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You get a sense of the image, don't you? These Pharisees who are so serious about their fasting and repentance that literally they walk around with their disfigured, sunken in faces, showing others the hunger and the suffering of their repentance that they live under claiming in their prayers, I fast twice a week. Thank you that I'm not like these tax collectors and sinners. They wanted people to see the signs of their repentance and see the price they were paying for that repentance. That's the idea at the core of the Pharisees' perspective on the world. They were trying to enforce the law, to call people to repent and live so seriously under the law that they could guarantee God's full blessing because of that obedience and religiosity. They wanted all of Israel to repent. This was their message. Turn to God, obey his law, practice all of the commandments. Jesus' response to them is to turn to an image of a wedding feast. Jesus answers this objection. We know what true repentance looks like. And by the way, Jesus, it's not the partying that you're doing in houses, eating and drinking. And Jesus responds by saying, can you make wedding guests fast while the groom, the bridegroom, is with them? Now, in the ancient world, we've talked about before in some of our past sermons where we've encountered these wedding analogies or parables or parts of the story, this idea of feasting at weddings in the first century Jewish world. Many of these places, Cana, where Jesus was before, were not large towns, And so it was that whenever they celebrated one of these weddings, it often involved the whole community, perhaps even family members traveling in. And this wasn't a sort of Saturday evening, two-hour event, a few snacks and hors d'oeuvres, a quick ceremony, and then on to our other business. These festivals often lasted an entire week, and the wedding party would have been celebrated and honored, and there would have been feasting and food and wine and celebration for days. 
This image of celebrating at one of these weddings, as Jesus describes here, as he objects back to the Pharisees, was a clear idea in the Jewish mind in the first century. And that celebration that they had of weddings was not just a party. That's the wrong way to think about what they were doing. Let's get together for seven days, celebrate, and have a good time. It was actually considered a kind of sacred obligation. And the charge was that the community, the families, were supposed to celebrate this coming together of two people as it was prescribed, even being a kind of sacred event, the celebration of this marriage covenant. In this culture, remember, everything is prescribed by the law. These Jews are attempting to live in perfect obedience to the law. And this wedding celebration, the obligation of it, was something that they understood to be religious. In the Talmud, which is a a later collection of Jewish writings, they actually refer to these wedding celebrations as the sudat mitzvah. We talk about a bar mitzvah. In other words, it's a commanded meal or a commanded celebration. That these wedding traditions, these celebrations, according to those later rabbis, was a religious command. We're not just getting together to celebrate and have a good time. We, under the obligation of the law, are celebrating this coming together, this wedding. And so you get passages like this from the Talmud. This is from what's called a midrash, a commentary. It's not scripture, but what they would do is they would provide commentary. They would imagine the meanings of scriptures from the Old Testament. And so it's a later rabbi who's imagining the heavenly celebration that was taking place at the union, the marriage of Adam and Eve upon creation. There was no community to come together and celebrate. So what this Jewish rabbi imagines is the angels in heaven celebrating over this wedding ceremony of Adam and Eve. And so the Talmud records, the Holy One, blessed be he, made 10 wedding canopies for them in the Garden of Eden of precious stones and pearls and gold. The angels were playing upon timbrels and dancing with pipes. The Holy One, blessed be he, said to the ministering angels, come, let us descend and render acts of love to the first man and his wife. For the world rests upon acts of love. And the ministering angels went to and fro, dancing and singing before Adam and Eve. Okay, this is not scripture. I'm not quoting you Genesis. What I'm telling you is there was a Jewish idea that these wedding ceremonies were supposed to be events of religious celebration, that God himself and the angels were celebrating over this act, this sacred act of marriage. There was a debate in the first century. There's two Jewish rabbis that are common, Hillel and Shammai, who are often debating how the law should be acted out. But both of them agree that this obligation of wedding celebration is a part of the law. And so in this debate, we get written, One recites praise of the bride as she is, emphasizing her good qualities. It's describing how the rabbi of the local community should praise the bride at these wedding celebrations. And Hillel says, one recites a fair and attractive bride. They literally have this ongoing debate about the things the rabbi should say in celebration of the bride and groom. The whole point of me walking you through this is to say that these celebrations Jesus referring to can you tell the wedding guests at a wedding not to celebrate and eat and drink? Is not Jesus just saying, isn't it okay to party when there's something to celebrate? Jesus is actually doing the thing that the Pharisees do. He's countering their objection from the law with another obligation from the law. This is how rabbis in the first century debated. They didn't just share random ideas. They tried to understand the law and they debated the obligations of the law. And what Jesus is saying here is, don't you realize that there is a particular obligation under the law that at these times of weddings, we are required to celebrate, 
to feast, to eat and drink, and to make joy, to praise the bride and groom, that all should come together and welcome this major event, that that itself, that celebration, is part of the law and fulfilling it. It would have been understood that even these Pharisees, as they claimed they were fasting two times, every week we fast two specific days, they would have understood that during these obligations of worship ceremonies, weddings, celebrations, and feasts, that even their own obligation of fasting was set aside for the higher obligation of celebrating as a participant in that community. And so it is Jesus supersedes what's being said of them. We know what repentance looks like. It looks like fasting. Jesus responds, but yes, doesn't the law also command that at weddings, the obligation is superseded to joy and celebration over fasting? So why does Jesus use this image of a wedding? Why is his turn, this talk after all being that of repentance, Jesus shifts the conversation not from the images of repentance, but to the images of a wedding and a feast? Certainly, Jesus is alluding to an old prophecy, an idea that flows throughout the Old Testament. Consider places like Isaiah 54. For your maker, this is referring to God himself, the maker of all things, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth is he called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. There's this old idea, old throughout all of the Old Testament and the prophets, that Israel, the nation of Israel, was the bride of God and that God was his people's husband. One of the most common prophetic themes is that theme of Israel's unfaithfulness in the Old Testament, their idolatry, being cast as an unfaithful wife or bride. And the promise of the Old Testament is not that God would abandon that wife, that a day would come when he would bring that wife back and redeem her and restore that marriage relationship. Jesus turns to this idea because he's saying something very profound. Not just that it's worth celebrating. Hey, it's a good time. Jesus has come. Let's have a party. Why do you fast? You Pharisees, you're always so negative about everything. Jesus is saying that their obligation to celebrate at this particular moment supersedes their obligation to fast because he is the groom who has come to redeem and restore his people, the bride. The Pharisees had lost this expectation. They understood the message of Israel's unfaithfulness. That was the message they themselves preached. Repent, keep the law, turn back to God so that we might have all of his promises again. They understood that that message was about repentance. What they couldn't grasp was the promise that God himself would come to restore that bride. They were constantly turning their attention to their own preparations, their own restoration, their own cleansing and obedience and self-righteousness. But Jesus takes up this image to remind them of that much older prophecy, that God would come as a groom and that he would come to restore and redeem his bride. This is the reason the Pharisees couldn't understand what Jesus was saying. He had come to do what the bride could not do. 
Jesus had come to do what the law itself could never fully recover. Jesus was claiming before them to be the one that prophets like Isaiah had prophesied. When Jesus compares himself to the bridegroom, is he not comparing himself to those lines of Isaiah, for your maker is your husband? Jesus is claiming to be God who has come to restore and redeem his people, the bride. Do you remember those characters early in Luke's gospel, Anna and Simeon? The old woman, Anna, had been spending her days in the temple, day and night, we're told. She never left. And do you remember what it says that she was doing there? She was fasting and she was praying. Simeon, too, is said to be waiting anxiously on the fulfillment of all that God had promised. But yet these two, in the midst of their fasting and praying, see the child Jesus being brought in and by the Holy Spirit realize what it is they are seeing. God, light, promise has come into the world. And so to them, they are suddenly filled with joy and begin speaking and praising God. There is here some kind of difference in this fasting, this praying, isn't there? The Pharisees, by all of their fasting and praying, see only their righteousness and everyone else's faults. The more they fast, the more they walk around with sunken in faces, trying to convince everyone that they are the truly righteous, the only ones really fulfilling the law. But yet here are these other characters, Anna and Simeon, who fast and pray and by it find not their eyes cast on themselves, but their eyes shifted and open to see God's fulfillment of his promises. The point of this passage is not you shouldn't fast or you should fast. That's not what they're debating. The real question is, for all of this religious work that you're doing, the praying and the fasting and the obedience, is it turning your eyes ever more on yourself Or is it opening your eyes to see what God is doing, what God is offering? How should the Pharisees have responded to Jesus' point here? They probably should have recognized that he was claiming something great. That he was claiming to be the fulfillment of all of the things that they were hoping and obeying for. That everything that they lived and all of their self-discipline to achieve, Jesus was before them. But of course the Pharisees couldn't see that. So Jesus pushes the analogies a little further. You don't take a piece of new cloth, cut a patch out from it, and attach it to old cloth. As soon as you wear it and wash it, it'll shrink and it'll pull away and it'll tear. It won't fit. Likewise, he says, you don't take new wine and pour it into an old wineskin, for as it expands, it will bust the wineskin and spill out. Then he makes their problem, their particular stance, abundantly clear. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For what do they say? The old is good. Some manuscripts have it. The old is better. Jesus is quoting back the Pharisees' perspective on all things. We don't need anything new. We don't need anybody to tell us anything. We don't need to reconsider anything we've thought. We know, we understand, and all that's left is to obey and for everyone else to get in line behind us and do just as we think they should be doing. The Pharisees weren't wrong. They weren't bad. They understood the law better than almost anyone and cared desperately to receive all that God had promised them. But they had become so focused on their own obedience, the old way, that they had lost the ability to see the new thing that God was doing. That God's promises weren't always future. That God was actually fulfilling those promises before them. 
but somehow they couldn't see it. Jesus recognized that they had fallen in love with the means of preparing for the gift. And it become so in love with those preparations that they could no longer actually receive the gift itself. They were so worried about being ready for the Messiah, so worried about ushering in the Messiah, that they couldn't recognize the Messiah when he was standing before them. So Jesus says, this is not the time to fast. This is the time to celebrate. This is not the moment to prepare. This is the moment to receive, to be welcomed into all of the things you've been waiting for. There is here, I think, something important to say about human nature, about religious human nature. Here's how one commentator I was reading this week put it. I thought, well, while fasting is appropriate as a plea for God to usher in the messianic age, in this passage, fasting represents a stubborn refusal to acknowledge that God has done so. Yet the problem is deeper than whether one should fast. Jesus recognizes that comfortable, familiar forms of spirituality exert a neurotic effect that blurs perception to new revelation. Even though Jesus brings new wine, those accustomed to the old find the new to be inferior. We like what we've been drinking, thank you very much. We'll take more of that. And so they miss the thing that Jesus is offering them. The self-righteous eye, the eye that falls in love with what I'm doing and how I'm doing it, has a tendency to always look at myself, to evaluate myself, perhaps only when my eye moves away from myself to judge others in comparison to myself, and to constantly be focused on what I expect, what I think, what I want. It's not well positioned to see new things, to receive things, to recognize I need things. It is, by Jesus' continual calling of these others, those who see him, Simeon and Anna, those who respond, Peter and Levi, Peter falling before him and crying, I'm unworthy, Levi recognizing and walking away from his life as a tax collector, Luke makes it explicit, it is the sinner who recognizes what Jesus is offering, that he is offering a gift through repentance, and that all that is needed to receive it is to turn and receive from him and follow. So this is the mistake, the warning. The Pharisees don't receive Jesus. They only know how to practice their faith, how to evaluate Jesus as another teacher. They have plenty of opinions, but no real hunger. Jesus is the Messiah, but only if he meets their expectations and their definitions of what the Messiah should be and should do. And so, as Jesus so often charges them, they're blind. They cannot see what is before them, nor, and perhaps this is even more important in this passage, nor can they participate in the joy and celebration of receiving what God is offering. So what do you do with this passage of Scripture? Us. Well, number one, let me encourage you not to cheapen it. Too often when we read this passage or I hear this passage talked about, it gets down to Jesus loves to party with people. (laughs) Jesus isn't one of those stuffy, judgmental Pharisees who's always judging. Some cheap thrill, the Pharisees getting told off. We walk away thinking Jesus is a pretty easygoing guy and I bet we would get along well. I think that's to miss the entire point of Jesus eating with Levi in this conversation with the Pharisees. 
Jesus has come to call people to repentance. That's how this story and conversation starts. That means that those who follow Jesus are expected to live new lives, to handle their identity and their possessions in a radically new way. Levi walks away from his job. Peter does the same, this new life of following and imitating Jesus. But the response of following Jesus should produce joy. That's really what I think this passage is about. To recognize what Jesus is offering you should create in you that desire to celebrate, to feast, to welcome him with hearts of celebration, like those images of weddings that we looked at, heaven breaking loose in celebration. Garland, one of the commentators I read this week, put it, for Jesus, repentance is associated more with joy than tears of remorse. Sure, there's remorse. Of course, there's remorse in repentance. But how quickly is that remorse replaced with this joy of what is given to us, received in that moment of repentance? Another way to say this is that Jesus has not come simply to teach us a new way to live, though he does do that. Jesus also comes that he might live for us, that he might die for us, that he might redeem us and restore us and offer us what we could not live on our own. We do live differently, but we live differently because of what he has done and given us. What we have received in this word forgiveness and restoration is what leads to that life of change and repentance and the joy it produces. This passage is about a lot more than Jesus hanging out with sinners. The second thing, this passage by Jesus' own words makes abundantly clear who he is claiming to be. Jesus is not simply a moral teacher, teaching us a better way to live. He's not just a prophet, not even a prophet like John the Baptist, calling the world to repent. Jesus says, I am the groom who has come to take this bride, to celebrate and worship and inaugurate that feast. He's alluding to all of those promises of the Old Testament, that God himself would come as a husband to redeem his people. And Jesus says, looking at the Pharisees who knew those promises better than anyone else, I am he. Think about those words, places like Hosea. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, For I will remove the names of the bales from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the lands and the birds of heaven and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down again in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Here's what I think you can really take away from this passage this morning. It's easy for the joy and the celebration of life to leak out of our faith. Can we recognize that? That years and decades of walking with Christ, we can actually begin to settle into the rhythms, the discipline, the fasting, and the praying, and to begin to miss something of that joy of what Christ has offered. It's easy for it just to turn into obedience and constant self-evaluation. But let us never forget that this story, what Jesus has come to do by his own words, 
is that he has come to offer us something, to give us something. He has come to invite us to follow him and to receive this restoration and redemption. There's one more thing in this passage I haven't mentioned, if you're paying close attention to the text. Jesus' disciples are not fasting when he's with them because there's so much to celebrate. But Jesus acknowledges that a time is coming when they will fast. Do you see it in the passage? The days will come, Jesus says, when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. In Luke's gospel, this seems to be Jesus' first mention of the suffering that awaits him. And that he seems here, even in those earliest days of his ministry, to recognize that not all would be celebration and feast. Jesus recognized a time would come when he would be taken away. There would be a time when his disciples would be grieved and would fast again. That that fasting would take on the quality, the character of waiting, of watching for his return, of hoping and longing for that final wedding feast when all things will be made final in his kingdom. But even in this waiting, the realization of his disciples that he would be taken from them, that promise that the Holy Spirit would come, and somehow even that act of fasting, having been with Jesus, now transformed. We don't fast now like the Pharisees fasted. We, those who have found Christ, don't fast even like John the Baptist's disciples who awaited. We don't fast with sunken in faces. We don't fast so that we could break our own wills. We don't fast out of some kind of fear or uncertainty, desperate to get something from God. We fast now so that we might recognize more of what is already, already ours. We fast now because we have both his spirit in us and still this flesh that is waiting that final fulfillment of all things. We fast now so that we might have our eyes open to all that Christ has given us and so that that hunger, that physical hunger, might create in us a spiritual hunger to have more of what is offered us. Isn't it fitting that today, this scene, this meal and celebration, this wedding feast, this sharing of food and drink that Jesus alludes to, catches us on this, the first Sunday of the month? It's long been our tradition to celebrate communion together on the first Sunday. And so it is, I think, a fitting way for us to respond to this, to share together a meal, and to do just as Jesus had said, to eat and to drink And to recognize that in this meal, this feast enacted, there is that promise of a new covenant. There is that joy that is given to us. That there is, as we eat and drink of this food, as Jesus' disciples did with him, that expectation and gladness and yet still a longing for all that it will be. Listen again to how Luke records Jesus' words in Luke chapter 22. That familiar scene of Jesus doing what? at a table again with food and drink and his disciples. And so it is, Luke records, Jesus, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I'm going to invite helpers to come forward and pass out the elements this morning. And as we do, could I just ask that you would prepare your heart to receive these elements again this morning? The way that the Pharisees could not, but the way that Levi was, that Christ has come to give you something this morning to offer you something this morning, not out of your obedience or self-righteousness, but as a free gift. And may we take it with the same kind of heart that Jesus' disciples did that day, recognizing that we have received this groom come to redeem us. And is it not good that we should be filled with joy and celebration and worship, not with sunken in faces, but with hearts made new through this new covenant? As they pass out the elements, let us prepare our hearts this morning. We'll pray and we'll receive them together. said to his disciples that evening I've earnestly desired to eat of these elements with you and what a joy it is for us to share in this together this morning would you pray over these elements with me this morning Heavenly Father we hold these elements as a reminder of what you have given us that you have done so by the breaking of your own body and the pouring out of your blood so we pray that by your spirit you would open our eyes that you would, as you promised, turn these hearts of stone into hearts of flesh that we might see and that we might receive again with all joy and gratitude which you have given at such high a cost. We pray that whatever burdens we bring in here this morning, what anxieties or fears or uncertainties, that God, by these elements, we would receive something greater than them, that we would receive you and with it all of your promises of life and life eternal. So we pray over this bread, your body, which was broken for us. We pray over this cup, your blood poured out for us, that we might receive it again, the joy of our salvation, worshiping you for all that you have given us freely. Jesus, it is with gratitude and in your name we pray.